Hard for you to find. The Gospel according to St. John in chapter number 20. If you can't find John, look for Obadiah. If you found Obadiah, turn right. And keep going. You'll find it by the time church starts tomorrow. <laughs> John chapter 20. And um, I said, I didn't make the promise in the first hour, and it's a good thing. I'm going to make the promise this hour. I won't keep you long. Lunch comes next. <laughs> I won't keep you long. It will seem long, but I won't keep you long. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. Then the same day, Sunday, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst. It's the resurrection day. Said unto them, Peace be unto you. And by the way, peace is not the bubbly feeling you get after, uh, you know, three gospel songs and four cups of coffee. <laughs> that's, uh, that's emotion. That's not a bad thing. But that's, that's not. Peace, uh, the word peace means uh, it's illustrated by all that happens when the war is over. Uh, peace is, is a settled state of security and safety that is not altered by circumstances, not by COVID, not by Afghanistan, not by a southern border, not altered. You can still have peace. don't know why I said that, but it was fun. Uh, peace be unto you. Let's see. As my Father, verse 21, middle of the verse, as my Father had sent me, even so send I you. As my Father has sent me, even so. That's with the same command, the same authority, the same promise of results, the same guarantee of power, the same everything. As my Father has sent me, even so said I you. Heavenly Father, pray you challenge us, stir our hearts one more time. Uh, have your will done in every heart in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach a brief message this morning on, uh, on a very simple message. You're not going to learn anything new. You're not going to learn anything, period. If you came expecting to learn, I'm sorry, you're sunk. You, uh, you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, I'm going to preach on three things that we must remember about the mission of the church. I'm not talking about learning something new. I'm not talking about figuring out something you didn't figure out before. I'm talking about being reminded of what we say we know. Uh, sometimes we don't act like we do, but what we say we know. You know, a lot of a lot of a pastor's ministry is uh, repetition. Uh, so leave me alone. <laughs> uh, and uh, Paul told Pastor Timothy, "Put them in remembrance." That means you've already taught them. Now remind them. And uh, that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything new. I'm not going to teach you anything. I'm going to step out of that mode if I ever could get into it. Remind you of some things, uh, three things that we must, we've got to, we must, we must remember about the mission of the church. I'm uh, 75. That's not as old as some of you. He's ignoring me. That's, I'm 75. That's not as old as some of you. Elbow him. <laughs> uh, but I've been preaching for 58 years now, over 58 years. 
Well, in August, the second Sunday of August, it was 58 years, exactly. And uh, and uh, I've been in evangelism for a total of 48 years. Uh, and I've preached hundreds of times, literally, correction, hundreds of sermons, literally thousands of times. I've preached in 43 states in continental U.S. And uh, halfway around the world across the Atlantic Ocean, halfway around the world across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and I have to report to you, I'm sorry, but I have to report to you that uh, the vast majority of our churches, our churches means fundamental Baptist churches, do not understand what the mission of the church is. In fact, I'll be real frank with you. I'm Andy, but you don't mind if I be frank for a while. Uh, many of the churches who talk as though they understood what the mission of the church is live as though they didn't, don't understand what the mission of the church is. Well, I'm not talking about sideline ministry. I'm talking about the mission, the mission, the purpose, the goal, the central focus, the mission of the church. So, preacher, what is the mission of the church? Well, I'll tell you what it's not first. How's that? Go in the back door. The mission of the local church is not politics. Politics is not a bad thing. I tell my son-in-law, who's involved in state and local politics pretty heavily, that uh, politics, you look it up in the dictionary, poly means many in the text of bloodsucker. <laughs> uh, but politics is not a bad thing. It simply means the science of government. Uh, I, I, and, and it's not, not a bad you know, politics is good. But political solutions only solve political problems. They don't solve moral problems. Uh, and the mission of the church is not politics. I'm not against it. If you want to put up a voting table out there and register voters, that's fine with me. But that's not the mission of the church. Um, I'm aware of the fact, as you are, that Romans 13, 1-5 says that uh, those who administer and enforce the laws of the land are ministers of God, ordained by God, to execute wrath on evildoers. Understand that. Uh, but that's not the mission of the local church. Not the mission. Uh, it's not wrong for a pastor to encourage his people to vote right and to let them know how those running for office have voted. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but that's not the mission of the church. I was in uh, Taco Bell. That's the Mexican phone company. Uh, in uh, uh, Chickamauga, Georgia, one day. We were on our way home from church. I was in Bible college then again. And uh, I was pastoring a church in Lafayette, Georgia. We were on our way home, my wife and I. We stopped at the Taco Bell. We were sitting there enjoying one of those tostados. You know what a tostado is? That's that kind of taco you can't fold it up. And when you bite into it, the juice runs down your sleeve. And I was sitting and in walked, there was a line of people at the, at the counter. And in walked this short, uh, very, very, very stocky, muscular uh, black man in a Georgia State Trooper uniform. And uh, he walked in, looked like, you know, Pillsbury doughboy with muscle. And uh, he's waiting in line to get his order. I told my wife I'd be right back, and I got up and I walked up to him, and I handed him that little gospel tract, God's Simple Plan of Salvation. And I thanked him for his service, and I told him, because you do what you do, I get to do what I do, uh, with some measure of peace and safety. And I said, I asked him when I handed him that tract, I said, sir, how long have you been in the ministry? Oh, he said, I'm not a minister. He said, I'm a, I'm a police officer. I said, oh, yeah, sure, minister. 
How long have you been a minister? How long have you been in the ministry? He said, I, I'm not a minister. I'm a state trooper. I said, I know. How long have you been in the ministry? And I kept on and on and on. Finally, he said, son, I don't understand. So I showed him that verse in Romans 13 where it says that those who enforce the laws of the land, they are ministers of God ordained by God to execute wrath on evildoers. I said, how long have you been in the ministry? He smiled from ear to ear. Showed me all his white teeth. Both of them. And he said, oh, I see what you're saying. He said, thank you for showing me that. He said, I'll be a better minister now than I've ever been before. Left on the gospel track and went on about our way. Now, uh, but I'm saying, you know, although we have a responsibility to government, understand that. Understand that. But that's not the mission of the church. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.13 that we are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Understand that? I don't like wearing seatbelts. I don't think the government has any business telling me whether I have to wear a seatbelt or not in my car. It's my car, not theirs. But I wear one. I put one on every time I get in the car. Because, the, you know, the Bible says I'm no big government. However, and I'm going to say, I'm simply saying this, that government is not sin. It's sinful sometimes. But it's politics is, is a good thing if kept in check. But it's not the mission of the church. It's not the mission. Some churches get so involved in the political conservative fight that they leave the most important thing. Politics is not the mission of the church. It's not a bad sideline, but it, that's all it is. Secondly, the mission of the church is not education. I'm for education. Wouldn't mind having a little. But that's not the mission of the church. I'm for the Christian school. You know, I'm not against Christian schools. I'm for them. But that's not the mission of the church. I'm aware of the fact that every time a Sunday school teacher gets up in a class and opens a Bible and teaches the students something they didn't know before, that's education. But that's not the mission of the church. I'm aware of the fact, you don't have to remind me, that every time the pastor stands and teaches the Word of God, that's education. Understand that. And that's a vehicle, that's a, a, a means for that, but, a, but education is not the mission. How many times have got to say it? <laughs> education is not the mission of the local church. Um, how about this one? Sheep feeding, not the mission of the church. Sheep feeding is important. Jesus told Peter three times in one chapter. Feed my sheep. And by the way, on the day of Pentecost, that's exactly what Peter did. He fed the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 3,000 got saved and baptized joined the church. But sheep feeding is not the mission of the church. Peter said that pastors are to feed the flock. Um, Paul told the pastors from Ephesus that were meeting on the island of Miletus, feed the sheep. But sheep and sheep feeding is vitally important, but that's not the mission. Every time you walk in that door and you sit in a pew and your pastor stands, or you might be the pastor, and teaches the Word of God and preaches and encourages the people of God, that is sheep feeding. That's important. That's a vehicle. You can't do without it. But it's not the mission. It's not the mission of the local church. It's an important responsibility, but it's not the mission. Fourthly, the mission of the local church is not cleaning things up. 
I, I, I would like for this young man to be able to grow up in a cleaner America than what I had to grow up in. Doesn't look like you're going to get to. I'm sorry. And I was telling somebody the other day, if Jesus don't come soon, I fear, I fear, I fear for what my grandchildren are going to have to go through. Even my children, for that matter. Um, but the truth about and, and, and the fact is, I'd like to see every den of iniquity closed down. Every sodomite put in prison where they belong. Every, every street-walking prostitute arrested. Every bar shut down. Every den of iniquity closed up, burned to the ground. But the truth is, cleaning society up is not the mission. Hey, when people get saved, their lives will clean up. When their lives clean up, society will clean up to a degree. But that's not the mission of the church. Um, I really believe, you know, it seems like every time somebody, every time you turn around, somebody's coming along and creating another committee to clean up this area of society. I really believe that if the prodigal son lived in our day, somebody would start the national committee to clean up the hog pen. But it's not, my, it's not our job to clean up the hog pen. It's our job to get the hog out of the pen, get the prodigal out of the hog pen. I think cleaning things up is a good thing. And we ought to stand for right. There used to come a day once a year where our church, a bunch of people would march up and down the main street, right in the main street. Most of us would stand right in front of the local Joe's Bar and Grill place. And uh, uh, marching for life, you know, pro-life, some kind of pro-life day. A lot of churches did it. I'm not against it. I'm for that. I'm just saying that cleaning things up is not the mission. Not the mission of the church. It's not a bad sideline. It's not a bad vehicle. But it's not the mission. The mission of the church is not changing lifestyles. Somebody gets saved, their lifestyle will change. Let a man be in Christ. He is a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. But changing lifestyles is not the mission. I'm for standards. I think we ought to have biblical standards of separation. I think most of us, was, most of us have fallen off the wagon when it comes to that. But the truth of the matter is, changing lifestyles isn't the mission. Here's one for you. Fellowship. Is not the mission of the church. We do fellowship. We will fellowship. Every time we get together, we fellowship. Men fellowship. Women gossip. You're welcome. Rest of your cards. Uh, fellowship's a wonderful thing. We need fellowship. And that is one sideline benefit of having church meetings and church services and church activities. Fellowship. Nobody is an island to himself. I hate to break the news to you, but you need me. And I'm having a hard time swallowing it, but I need you. We need one another. We have to have fellowship. Virtual baloney. We need fellowship. That's why, that's why the church, the word church means called out, assembly, gathered together. We need one another. We need fellowship. But that's not the mission. Now, you're, you're going to swallow your false teeth on this one. The mission of the local church is not worship. 
We do worship when we come to church. We worship in our tithes and offerings. We worship in our singing, etc. We worship in our testifying and our praise. But that's not the mission. That's not the goal. That's not the central hub of the local church. I challenge you sometime to go through your Bible every time the word worship is used. The first time it's used, and remember the law of first mention, is when Abraham is told to take Isaac up Mount Moriah and kill him. And he told his servants, you wait right here. We're going to go up and worship. We'll be back down. You study that account, you'll find out what worship really is. It has to do with sacrifice and service. But every time in the Old Testament, the word worship is used, almost every time, uh, it's a corporate affair, not an individual affair. Corporate. Then when you get to the New Testament, primarily the epistles, when you see the word worship, it is never connected with the activity of a local church. It's always a personal thing, one-on-one. I'm not against worship. When we come to church, we do worship. We do worship. But as important as worship is, that is not the mission. That's M-I-S-H-U-N. That's not the... You lousy spellers too, aren't you? That's not the mission of the local... Say, preacher, if the mission of the church is not politics, education, sheep feeding, cleaning things up... Changing lifestyles, fellowship, worship, if it's not these things, what is the mission of the local church? Well, thank you for asking. I thought you'd never get around to it. The mission of the local church is plain and simple, keeping sinners out of hell. That's the mission. Everything else we do ought to point toward that, support that, aid in that. If it doesn't, it's a waste of time. The mission, we call it, you can call it soul winning. Uh, you know, they say familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes we use a good phrase, even a biblical phrase, so long it seems to lose its punch. You can call it soul winning, you can call it witnessing, you can call it persuading, you can call it what you want. The mission of the local church, plain and simple, is keeping sinners out of hell. Jesus gave the Great Commission three times. By the way, by the way. He shouldn't have to give a great commission. We ought to want, without a great commission, we ought to want to rest. You know, there, is, there are three great commissions in the Bible. The first one God gave to every citizen on earth. And at that time it was just Adam and Eve. And he said, multiply and replenish. That was their great commission. The second one was given to Israel when they were about to go in the promised land where there were a bunch of polytheistic Satan worshippers. And, and uh, God told them in Deuteronomy 6, For hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. Uh, and then he said, These principles you teach to your children when you lie down, and when you stand up, when you're walking by the way, when you go to bed, when you uh, write it on the doorpost, write it on the wall, put it everywhere. That was their great commission. When they went, and ours is what we know as the great commission. Jesus gave the New Testament Great Commission three times, and it's recorded five times. If it were recorded only once, and it only given it once, that ought to make us start raving mad fanatics to fulfill it. But five times recorded, three times given, five times recorded the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 
The emphasis is on the three parts of the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Make disciples. That's, that's winning souls. That is to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That is to teach them. That's a different word for teach. That word, didasco, it means to impart knowledge. The three parts of the Great Commission are we're to win them, we're to wet them, then we're to work them. That's the FBI. Find, baptize, and indoctrinate. That's the Great Commission. Then in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he emphasized the personal nature of the Great Commission. He said, go ye, by the way, the go in Matthew is a passive command. It means as you go, wherever you go. The go in Mark 16, 15 is an imperative command. He's saying, stop what you're doing. Go into all the world. That's every place. And preach the gospel to every creature. That's individual. That's personal soul. What I'm doing right now is not preaching in that sense of the word. Not, for, not, not fully anyway. That word simply means to proclaim. It doesn't matter if it's one on one or one on a hundred. Or one on a thousand. It means to proclaim. The emphasis, preach the gospel to every individual. Our responsibility is to spend and be spent saying that every single person gets the gospel. Then in Luke... He said in Luke 24, he said that repentance and remission of sins is to be preached among all nations. And then he said, beginning at Jerusalem. Where was he when he said that? He was in Jerusalem. So the emphasis is, begin at home. I'm for missions. There's nobody that I know of on earth who's more for missions than I have. Our church is a missionary church. We had, we had the first, we all had two mission conferences since I've been there. Our new pastor grew up in that church, and he held up the first mission conference under his pastor there. And uh, we ra they, raised, they raised in one day 100, over $110,000 for missions. I'm for missions. I've preached missions conferences in the Philippines. I've preached them in 43 states in the continental U.S. Now, I don't know. I've, I've never met. I've met people that are probably as much for missions, but none that are more. But you know, the fact is, if I spend thousands of dollars of my money to send missionaries overseas, and I won't try to win my next door neighbor, I'm a hypocrite. If I pay this guy over here to go to Africa to witness to a black man, and I won't try to win the black man in my neighborhood, I'm a hypocrite. I mean, you know, class A hypocrite. Uh, the right commission is all the world, but they start right at home. Start right at home. If you don't have a strong base at home, you're not going to have much of a base to send missions. And then in the book of Acts, I'm skipping John. In the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8, he gave the great commission for the final time. They had asked him, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Jesus said, take none of your business. He said, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, not within you, upon you. And you shall be, uh, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Then he named Jerusalem, both. He said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. He was saying, while you're doing it at home, pay others to do it where you can't. That's a great commission. 
And then in John 20, 21, he gave the Great Commission emphasizing the importance and the authoritative nature of it. And he said in that passage, as my Jesus speaking, as my Father hath sent me with the same authority, the same power, promise of power, the same guarantee of his presence, the same promise of results, the same protection, just like the Father sent me, now is that I'm sending you. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus had refused when the Father sent him? We'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? We'd all be headed for hell with gasoline britches on. Well, let's know more treason if he'd done that than if we don't do what he told us to do. As my Father has sent me, so send I you. He's emphasizing the Great Commission, the importance and the authority of religion. Hey, when you witness to somebody, don't let anybody tell you it's none of your business. It is your business. Amen. I've been out with Brother Elmo Parker, soul winning, a man of great wisdom. And on more of a, I don't know how many, a number of occasions, somebody has said to us, that's none of your business. Well, why don't you keep that in the church? And Brother Parker would step forward. And they'd say, look, I'm going to be real frank with you. I'd rather be sitting at home in my easy chair watching the college basketball game. I'm not here by choice. I'm here because God commanded me to. What'd that get? Well, a couple times it got a door slammed in the face. Other times it got their attention. I'm saying the mission of the local church is the great commission that was given to the local church. And every believer. The mission. Now, I said, I'm going to preach on three things we must remember about the mission of the church. This is a sermon with a long runway and a very short flight. Very short. I flew one time on a plane. No, in the plane. From San Francisco to Los Angeles. You can drive it in five, six hours. And uh, we got on the plane and plane taxied out and got in line to get out to the runway. We waited a half hour in line. Finally, our turn to, came to get out, and we, we got at the runway, and, the, and the, the pilot put the pedal to the metal, and you could feel the thing running down the, And you could, you know, when you're flying, you can feel it lift off, lift. You can feel it lift before it even leaves the ground. You can feel the weight come. And uh, you can feel it lift, and all of a sudden, they put the brakes on. And he made a U-turn on the next one when I came back. And he said this, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain. We're going to try that again. <laughs> Real confidence builder. I don't know what happened, but we made the flight. But you know, it almost seemed like more runway than flight. That's what this sermon is, more runway than flight. Three things we must remember about the church. And here they are, deep theology, here it comes. Number one, there is something to save men from. We've forgotten that. There is a hell. There's a real, literal, physical location called hell. The Bible teaches by biblical language that right now it's in the center of the earth. We're not told what is where it's going to be when it's called the lake of fire. Maybe the same place. I don't know. But there is a hell. There is a hell. 
There's a rich man who died without Jesus Christ. Jesus told about him. Who's in that place and been on that place for 2,000 years. Screaming for a drop of water to cool his tongue. There is a place called hell. And every one of your friends and loved ones who die without Jesus Christ are going there. And I'm sorry, but humanity, our generation, is headed there with a speed that makes our fastest jet look like a tortoise. There is a hell. We've got to get back to the point where we believe that. Not just act like, but, you know, I mean, what, what you believe determines your behavior. Belief determines behavior. If somebody comes running in here and saying, Get out! There's a bomb! Not a bum. A bum. If you believe, you'll get out. If you don't, you'll probably sit there and laugh. What your, your belief determines your behavior. You know what that means? That means that most of us don't believe in hell. If we did, we'd spend our time uh, morning, noon, and night warning sinners. Warning sinners. Earnestly warning them. Don't go to hell. Don't go to hell. Don't go to hell. There is something to save men from. Secondly, there is something to save men with. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not your stories or your anecdotes. It's not your plan or your method, although I think you ought to have one. You, you, you don't do anything important without a plan. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. It calls it the death of Christ according to the Scriptures. The burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. And then it says, it's about verse 3 or 4, this is the gospel by which we are saved. It's the gospel that saves people. In John 5, 24, Jesus put it this way. He said, He that hears my word, the gospel, and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. Notice the condition of everlasting life is believe. But the condition of believe is you have to hear the word first. You wouldn't know what to believe. You wouldn't know how to believe until you heard the gospel. Paul put it this way in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it's the gospel that saves. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1.23. He called the gospel of Jesus Christ the, the incorruptible reproductive seed by which men are born again. You know what soul winning is? That's where a Christian takes the gospel message. Here we go, Brother Jim. Here we go. The gospel seed. When that sinner believes that message and receives that message, the Holy Spirit enters, impregnates that seed, and the, and the life of God is born in that person. That's regeneration. But you can't have that without the Word of God. I'm saying there's something to save men from. There's a hell. There's something to save men with the gospel. And there's something to save men to. And I'm not just talking about a life of morality and cleanness and God-honoring. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about eternity. There is a real, literal, physical place that's not a cast by the ghost figment of the imagination. It's a place, called, we call it heaven. The Bible calls it the New Jerusalem. 
You read, Jesus said, I go to prepare. It didn't say build. It said, I prepare a place for you. You want a description? A place, singular, for you is plural. We're not going to live in different mansions over the hilltop. We're all going to live. Family lives together. And you want a description of that place? Read Revelation 21.1 through 22.6, last two chapters. You'll find it to be 1,500 cubic miles. 1,500 miles that way, 1,500 miles that way, and 1,500 miles straight up in the air. You'll find that it has 12 foundations, each made of a beautiful, colorful, bright gem. You'll find that it has walls 216 feet all the way around the city, made out of jasper. You'll find that it has three gates on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west, each one made of one huge, gigantic pearl. Pity the oyster. You'll find the interior of that city is made of gold that's so pure it's as transparent as glass. You'll find the right smack dab in the middle of that city. Right smack dab in the middle is the throne of God and the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find that the glory from that throne shines so much that it has no need of the earth, of the moon, rather the sun and the stars. Because the light of the glory of God will lighten it. You'll find that from that throne flows a river called the river of the water of life. You'll find that on the banks of that river, read it. You're looking at me like a cast turning at a new gate. Read it. On the banks of that river are trees that bear about 12 manners of fruit 12 times a year. And that fruit, the leaves symbolize the health of the nations. You'll find there men like Abraham, men like David, men like Adam. When I get there, I'm going to choke him. <laughs> You'll find Elijah there and Elisha. You'll find the Apostle Paul there. Preacher? I'm going to see my mama again. She went there about 1971, 72. I found my daddy there. I led him to the Lord over the telephone from 400 miles away. A lost 90-year-old Church of England agnostic. He died in my arms on the floor of our house. I'll see him again. Best of all, get to see Jesus. I don't know how it's going to happen, not what we'll be lying to do. I'll get to die at his feet. Hallelujah. I won't talk in tongues. I'll probably lose it. I'm saying, there is something to save men too. There is something to save men too. Years ago, a friend of mine named Dick Seaton, he was known, he was an evangelist, he was known as the Billy Sunday of the West Coast in his day. He's the reason that Jack Hiles started pastor school. He's the man that followed Hiles around for a week and then Hiles said, I can't do this. We've got to do it with everybody together, you know. And uh, Brother Dick, 
he had uh, flown from Durango, Colorado, his home, to Los Angeles, California, to preach a meeting. The pastor sent a deacon down, a businessman, to pick him up, take him to his motel Saturday afternoon. He, he, the, the, when he got there and debarked up the plane, his ride was there, so he went downstairs to the carousels and got his luggage and had three large pieces of luggage he set on them, waited for his ride. He said, all of a sudden, this Lincoln, big black Lincoln Continental, brand new, shiny and glittering, pulled up. He said, I've got this businessman. He said, dressed in a crisp suit that fit perfectly. I hate guys like that. I, I look like, I feel like a 10-pound sack of potatoes on a 5-pound sack. And he, this guy came up to him and said, are you Dick Seaton? Dick Stoltz said, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, I'm Deacon so-and-so. I'm here to take you to your room. And Dick stuck his hand out. The guy wouldn't shake his hand. Dick thought he'd help with the luggage, but he wouldn't. He just said, get your luggage and follow me. And he walked toward the door. When he got to the door, it wasn't one of those step on the mat and it opens by itself. You had to push the door open. The guy didn't even open the door for him. He stood aside and said, you go first. Dick, one luggage under here, one in that hand, one in that hand. He struggled through the door. When he got to the trunk of the trunk of the car, the guy didn't open it. He said, you push that button on there. He said, I'll open that trunk. Put your luggage in and get it on the driver's side. Dick thought, Come on Friday. <laughs> That's why I'm going to get this meeting over with. When he went around and got in the car, and he, he looked over and he noticed that every control was a foot control, steering, brakes, turn signals, everything. Everything was on the floor, everything. And it dawned on him. The guy had no use of his hands. And Dick said to him, he said, my brother... He said, uh, I might have assumed by this you don't have any use of your hands. He said, no. He said, Dick, there was, a, there was an industrial accident when I was a young man. And he said, I lost the use of my arms and my hands, my fingers. I can't move them. I can't even feel them. They just hang, a dangle. And Dick said, wait a minute. You mean to tell me you're going to drive me on the Los Angeles freeway Saturday at 4.30 to an airport with no hands? I said, yeah, I do it all the time, Dick. Dick said, move over, I'll drive. Ah, he wouldn't let him. Dick said he learned to watch him pray. <laughs> they got to the motel. On Sunday morning, he got up to preach. And he was preaching, big crowd. And he made this statement, if you're not a soul winner, you're not a good Christian. And that deacon, that deacon stood up walked to the door, kicked the swinging doors open, and left. After the service, the, the pastor, the evangelist Dick said to the pastor, the preacher, I think we lost that one. And the uh, preacher said, don't worry about it, Dick. You didn't do anything wrong. He'll be fine. Leave him alone. He'll be all right. Don't worry about it. That night, well, Dick got up to preach, and he sat on the back row. Usually sits near the front. Sat on the back row. That deacon. Sat there by himself. Dick made the statement during his preaching. If you're not a soul winner, you're not a good Christian. And the guy got mad again. He walked over and he kicked the door with his brogan foot and opened the door and left. 
after the service, they were standing down in front, and the preacher said, Dick said, Preacher, we lost him. I'm telling you, we lost him. He's gone. He won't be back. And the pastor said, Don't worry about it, Dick. You did nothing wrong. You just preach it. It'll be all right. God deal with it. The next night, they were sitting on the platform by the full house. The congregation was singing, and Dick looked around, and that deacon was nowhere to be found. He turned to the pastor and said, Preacher, I'm telling you, we have lost that guy. And the pastor assured him again, Don't worry about it, Dick. He'll be all right. You did nothing wrong. Don't worry about it. Just preach. When Dick stood up to preach, the door came flying open. Dick had just started his message. And in came that size 12 brogan. And the man's shoe was in it. Foot was in it. And he walked down. First of all, he held the door back. He held the door back with his backside like that. And uh, he said, this way, guys. And he said, in walked five grown men, crisply dressed like businessmen. Walked down to where the deacon usually sits. And he said to them, this is where we sit, guys. And they walked in, and he said, now sit down, fellas. And they all sat down, and Dick went on preaching. And that night he made the statement, if you're not a soul winner, you're not a good Christian. And during the invitation, everybody was standing, heads were bowed, eyes were closed. The piano player was singing. People were coming forward. And that guy leaned over to his friends and said, follow me, guys. And he marched him out in the aisle, and he took him down the front. And he introduced him to the preacher. He said, preacher, this one is a business associate. And he said, I led him to the Lord in his office today. I said, these two are parking lot attendants. I led them to Christ during the lunch hour. And he said, these other two I led to the Lord in the lunchroom today. And they want to get baptized and join the church. After the service was over, Dick was down front. And he was witness. He was not witnessing. He was uh, talking to that crippled man. And I said, uh, sir, you have no use of your hands, your arms, your fingers. He said, that's right. Can't feel them. Don't even know they're there. And he said, but you led these five grown men to Jesus Christ today? He said, yes, I did. Dick said, how'd you do it? No hands. How'd you do it? And the guy said, would you like to see? He said, yeah, I would. He said, okay. And he hollered at his boy. David! The little boy came running down. He said, little boy, probably about your age, not little boy. He said, son, go get my Bible. I said, yes, sir. He went and got his Bible. He said, put it there on the corner. Put it And Dick said, I want to see how you did it. Show me how you led these men to Christ. And then he said, here's how I did it. Dick. Well, I'm going to use my hand to get down because I'm not crippled there. No fingers, no thumbs, with his teeth. 
that man led those five guys to Christ. You know, nobody in here looks like a cripple. Nobody. If that man can do it, why can't you? Why can't I? What excuse do we have to not do our best to try to win people to Jesus Christ? Let's stand with heads bowed and eyes closed for prayer. I don't know what else to say. I am under conviction. I pray, oh God, you'd forgive me for not being the soul winner I should and could be if I just would mean business about it. And I pray, oh God, that you'd bring deep reproof to all of our hearts about our need to set unimportant or lesser important things aside and concentrate on the most important thing. Help us, as our pastor has already mentioned, to make it a part of our everyday life, to spread the gospel, tell others, and invite others to Jesus. Oh, God, help us to mean business with you about this matter. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The altar is open. You want to come and find the place on an old-fashioned altar. Do business with God. This is the place. And now is the time. You come while the preacher comes. Once again, if you need to be seated, that's fine, or otherwise.